This is Kimberly Rice, and you are tuned into the Secret Sauce Marketing Tasting Show, the groundbreaking podcast for business bosses, professional women, and anyone who is hungry to learn how to create the career, business, and life of their dreams by charting their own course. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Secret Sauce Marketing Tastings. Thank you for joining us today. I could not be more excited to welcome my pal and longtime LMA biz dev colleague, Mike Orhoro, who has been at the forefront of working with law firms and lawyers to help them generate prosperity in very innovative ways. Mike has been around, as I have for quite a while, as a biz dev strategist, at one time was known as the coach for lawyers, and he is a very proud serial innovator. So I'm so glad to welcome him here today, and we're going to have a great discussion on what it means to develop business and the tools that you need to do that. So welcome, Mike. (laughs) my uh, my professional passion is simplification so okay. much of so much of what we experience in so many aspects of our life both for professional and personal is unnecessarily complicated and in the in the sales realm it's particularly acute i mean for decades we had all of these you know laborious processes of qualifying and presenting and overcoming objections and all this stuff right right and, and it's universally reviled by both buyers and sellers, yet it persists. You know, so um, I, I didn't set out to make this my mission, but what I discovered as I got into the, um, into the business of, of training and coaching lawyers was that they didn't have the time for all that, and, and I thought it was silly anyway. So we managed to distill the entire marketing, sales, and client retention spectrum down to three key interactions. And I don't think I can make it any simpler than that. Right. I haven't figured out how to make it easy yet, but simple, I think we've cracked the code on. Sure. Well, that's wonderful. Um, so, I mean, we've known each other for many years, and um, the, in, the legal services um, arena has certainly done a lot of changing over the time that I entered in 1991. Um, but why don't you share with us, from your perspective, you know, kind of what the life cycle has been um, from when you started to where we find ourselves today. Well, it's interesting that you uh, asked me this question. And by the way, it looks like we both showed up at about the same time in 1991. Um, but it's, it's interesting because uh, over the last few days, there was a discussion online about the Legal Marketing Association and uh, the conference and all this stuff like that. And I dredged up this white paper that I wrote when I was chairing the 2002 uh, annual conference. And so this is all in 2001, which was uh, you know, right around uh, 9-11 and all this. You know? And so I looked at it and I, decided, I, I determined that I could write the same, I could publish the same paper today with very few changes. Yes. So the large, and a number of the people that commented on this online discussion you know, weighed in in, in similar fashion. So I think the common thread is easier to describe, which is that lawyers really don't want to do this. 
everybody. You know, they, they just don't. And, and firms have tried all kinds of things, most of which, uh, because they, you know, the authorization for whatever program it is and, and the whole maturity curve that firms have gone through has all been driven by lawyers' um, uh, lack of desire, right, to do this right. and, and uh, attempt to avoid it. And so it's mostly been investments in a progression of things that have, that, that avoid having the lawyers have to sell. Right. I, mean, no, I would, I would if, 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 at risk of gross simplification. Yes. And so we had the brochures and all that stuff in the early days, as you recall. And then we had PR. And then we had, um, um, well, a little you know, sales training, obviously, is, is how I got into it in, in 91. But um, it, every iteration, every evolution has been another attempt to have business come in the door without the lawyers having to sell. Yes. You know, whether it doesn't matter if it's websites or social media, you know, most recently, or AI or whatever, the investments are all, in my view anyway, attempts to generate revenue while avoiding sales. Mm-hmm. Would, I mean, would you, would you agree? Absolutely agree, Mike. I, um, you know, I, I spent about 18 years in-house in various title roles as or finally was as chief marketing officer and then now I've been a business owner for going on 11 years and nothing to me has really changed except except nothing from the lawyer's mindset Um, and there's a couple of things that I take um, real great exception to um, as I've gotten and traveled and matured in my own business cycle as I I was just writing about this yesterday about law schools, how I feel like they commit educational malpractice by not at least exposing law students to the business of law topics. Um, when I was in-house and I always was on the marketing orientation checklist or I was on the orientation checklist and I would get these first year students and sometimes um, laterals under like say eight or nine years and we would start talking about marketing and relationship building and organizational involvement. And it, I mean, they looked like deer in headlights. They had no concept. Um, And so interestingly, my stepdaughter just graduated Drexel last year She's working a clerkship this year that'll end in August. And so now she's in her first job, a real full-time job search. And, you know, I have been spending quite a bit of time with her on coaching and guiding, but, you know, it's, it's not their fault. It's not their fault that they don't know. But then like what we always say is that you have to get to a place of knowing what you don't know. Yes. (coughs) Before you can actually, you know, have any kind of, mindset or behavioral change that's sustainable but then secondly you know I think you both you and I might both agree that what really really changed which was out of the hands of control of all of us well not all of us but a very very few and that was the great recession yes I mean I mean has there ever been a seismic shift but like as, as there was between 2008 and 10 but and I look back um, I look back, you know, I mean, I, I've been in legal services since 91, but I look back in the centuries before, you know, there were law firms and lawyers and they never had to do any kind of advertising or any of the things that you and I know, business development, marketing, anything, because they were regarded like a doctor as a profession and that people, clients would just automatically come to them. 
and then you then you fast forward you know decades maybe centuries later and the market's saturated there's a shrinking demand for legal services in different areas of practice they're not taught the business of law and you know and then the billables and the hourly rates have gone out of out of the you know stratosphere and it, all this is just blowing up <laughs> at the same time well if we, if we look at the history of markets um, every market reaches a tipping point where it changes from a seller's market, you know, with the early demand and all that to a buyer's market. Right. And the, the problem in the legal world is that during the, I'll, I'll call it 25 year seller's market that the American lawyer referred to as the golden age of law firms where they had all kind of pricing power in that throughout that um, they made a lot of money and they, business came in the door and just by making friends and that sort of thing, because everybody was buying and if you're their friend, they'll buy some from you. The problem is that w once that tipping point occurred and it shifted to a, a buyer's market, now the buyers have more friends than they have needs. <laughs> you know? right. The same methodologies and mindset and philosophies that were appropriate for a seller's market are not only inappropriate, but counterproductive and, and damaging in a buyer's market because right. they, irritate the buyers right and so uh, the whole concept of relationship building as a, a foundation as a as a uh, predicate premise right I reject I think that now as the data shows us that buyers of anything traverse 50 I think it's the latest I've seen is 60 something percent of the buyer journey online with digital means before they're willing to engage with the seller Right. And, and so what you have to have now is idea, what I call idea relationships, uh -huh. where large groups of people, obviously organized primarily by industry, can consume your thinking and formulate uh, opinions about the utility of that thinking and the, and the benefit of that thinking. And so while they don't know you, they know how you think about issues that matter. Uh -huh. and, and so that, that, uh, the, the kind of intimacy that lawyers used to create personally, one-on-one -on -one with social and, you know, uh, hanging out and dinners and all that stuff. Now, they're forming a relationship with your ideas mm. in, in digital fashion. Yes, the, the numbers bear that out. You know, I was just, um, I delivered a program recently on leveraging LinkedIn for business development. The latest figure I saw was 600 million people that are on LinkedIn and you know just like websites were in the eight the 90s in the early 2000s you know if you didn't have a website you didn't exist now as a professional if you don't have in my view an accurate um updated um professional profile with activity posts and discussions then you're not really in the game anymore no. And what's interesting is it's even more acute than that. I, uh, within the last month or so, I saw some data published by LinkedIn that said that the average LinkedIn user uh, spends 17 minutes per month on LinkedIn. That's all. Wow. That means you've got to be ultra relevant. Yes. Or, or they're just going to zip past you. I mean, in 17 minutes, I expect that, that that is people responding to the email that you get saying that there's new posts in this group or that or whatever, right? Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, so you've, you've got seconds to demonstrate relevance and earn any degree of attention, you know, with the content that you publish or the, the comments that you make or things of that nature. 
So the, the acuity of the skill now is far greater than I believe it's ever been. Yes. I want to talk more about that, but I want to circle back around that um, I know when you and I first met way back when, you were regarded as the coach. <laughs> the coach with the results emails or the results mail. Then that transition to Rainmaker VT. Right. And then that transitioned or pivot or add it to Deserve. Is that how you pronounce it? Deserve, yes. Um, and the, the progression reflects the, <laughs> the embarrassingly slow pace of my recognition, <laughs> perhaps, you know, but uh, I like to say that I finally cracked the code, but it took me 25 years. <laughs> so um, what happens is um, uh, the, the training and coaching, when we first all started this in the 90s, law firms were wealthy and, and they could afford to throw money at things and, and provide training and um, coaching of any kind that they wanted. And it really didn't have much economic effect. As, as I would tell prospective clients at the time, um, 80% 80, 80 of your lawyers aren't going to do anything with this. They're going to waste it. Uh -huh. uh, but the 20% are going to generate so much return that you won't care, at least in economic terms. And uh, that, that held true throughout. I was never able to figure out how to identify the 20%. And so um, nine years ago or whenever it was, we created in response to the Great Recession, where all the coaching was done. That game was over at that yeah. point. I mean, law firms got rid of every consultant that there was on any topic uh, in 2009, right? And so in response to that, I said, okay, you know, their, their perspective has changed. That's when we built Rainmaker VT so that lawyers could learn through simulation uh, privately, you know, with, with no social risk or things like that, and also inexpensively, that it was better aligned with the uh, firm's financial concerns at, at that time. Uh -huh. And so what we learned, though, was that the 80% problem didn't go away. Um, I'll give you an example. There's one firm that I have a long and very close relationship with. I've trained all the leaders in it. And I was talking in the early days of, of uh building this new technology, I was talking with the head of litigation there who's on the executive committee. And this is a guy that I bounce ideas off of, right? And he said, let's give it a try. So they had just bought, at that time, uh, this is when the iPad came out, they had just bought iPads for all 100 of their associates. And I said, well, that's very generous. Can uh -huh. they be useful with it? He said, I don't know. Let's <laughs> so we, we made the training, the Rainmaker VT suite available to these 100 associates for a month to see what would happen, right? And at the end of the month, I called the guy and I said, well, I've got your results and you're either going to be homicidal or suicidal. Oh, <laughs> he no. said, okay. Yeah, I said, well, um, 60, that is six zero of the 100, despite the sponsorship of the newly elected managing partner and this executive committee member, um, never logged in once. Didn't even go in and put their fingerprints on it, you know, and to, to create some op right and another 20% logged in precisely once which is pretty much the same thing right wow. and the other and the final 20% had a, a variety of different behaviors and consumption patterns and all that sort of thing and he said well um, he said I guess our money was well spent I thought he was gonna be mad because the money was wasted. He goes, no it was well spent because we now know what our problem is yeah our, ne our next generation doesn't care about this and worse they think it's okay not to care about it. They'd be trying masking techniques, right? 
Right. Um, they'd, they'd be trying to make it look like they're doing something. He said, but they're, they're ignoring it with impunity. And so w- we started looking at this problem, and I tried all kinds of different schemes throughout these decades to identify the 20%. And um, I have to confess that the answer came to me by uh, circuitous fashion. I can't claim any brilliance here. I was in a software venture about four years ago with some people in California, and we created software that eliminated hiring bias. And the way that it worked was instead of interpreting credentials, you know, went to school here, has this many years of experience, whatever, we created what were called tryouts, which were an opportunity for anybody to demonstrate that they could do the job. And your first exposure was their work product. You had no idea if they're male, female, young, old, fancy school, no school, whatever, right? And it worked exactly as projected. So I thought we can apply this same philosophy to this problem of identifying who's serious and, and therefore justifies or deserves, uh, there's the brand, um, you know, greater investment. So deserve is actually uh, the solution to this long-standing problem. It's a curated library of marketing and sales topics. And it enables firms to offer uh, the beginning of business development education to all their lawyers at negligible cost. I mean, we're talking trivia, trivial cost here. And, but the app measures each lawyer's participation level and thereby identifies which lawyers are committed to learning and therefore deserve additional investment in training and coaching. Hmm. And our model projects that 80% of them will you know, not do enough uh, to, to warrant additional investment. Those 20% then will move on to Rainmaker VT, which is where they learn actual skills because right. it's simulation that can convey skills and we can measure that. The people that perform there, all this is measurable, the people that perform in the stage two simulations, those are the ones that earn the big coaching investment because the firm now has behavioral evidence to say there's a, a greater likelihood that this lawyer will, will value this training and coaching and continue with it and perform rather than just you know, opt out after a few weeks and, and waste it all. So it's, it's a progression of my you know, understanding of how to solve the problem. And I've learned that the, the learning mission is three separate components, education, training, and coaching, right? right? And that they each have a different purpose and require a different tool. And so for many of those years, and this includes me, firms would misuse the money by hiring people like me to do education and training in addition to coaching. And all all of the data that I've found in my research says that a technology-based training outperforms instructor-led training along every metric that uh-huh. learning experts recognize, not just cost and convenience and that sort of thing, but all the efficacy metrics as well. So um, what we're advocating now is that firms embrace a very different philosophy. Instead of, because we know how ineffective attempts at forcing lawyers to comply with anything has been, you know, in all the time we've observed this scene, right? Sure. And so compliance is a, failed, is a failed mission. Instead, why don't we just say, we don't care if you do it or not. We just want to know who does. Right. And, and they can find out for, like I said, for pennies and, and start to say, okay, now we can rationalize these investments and our expectations why make life miserable for a bunch of lawyers that just aren't going to do it? Why right. not put all your investment and your attention on the ones that want to? Hmm. Yes. And how? And so, what is the uh, what is the early data to showing you? Well, we're in we're in uh, beta right now. When we um, when we first launched, um, 
like all brand new products, we learned a bunch of lessons, you know, and, sure. and we learned about our mistakes and, and, the, and the execution flaws and all that. So we, we backed off and we re-engineered it and that. So we're, we're actually just relaunching right now. Um, yes, our beta, our beta firm is about to get started in a few days. Uh, but it, it, the early experience validated our market. Uh, before I built Deserve, I interviewed 100 of, of, of our peers you know, that are uh, CMOs, BDOs, and, and the like, and managing partners and practice group leaders. And I asked them to, and I, and I had uh, ALA poll their membership also before I spoke at one of their meetings. Uh -huh. And we asked two questions. What percentage of this training and coaching money that you guys devote to this do you think is wasted by lawyers that just opt out? And the second question is, um, how do you choose which lawyers you're going to invest in? Uh -huh. So the, the first question um, was concentrated at 80%. It ran from 20 to 90% with a heavy concentration at 80. Uh, and the second question, when we, when we asked them how they chose, there were four primary schemes. One was uh, they give it primarily to associates, so they claim to provide it to everybody. I don't know about that one. Uh, they offer it to lawyers who have specifically requested it. And then the fourth category is a mashup of perceived potential sponsorship by a partner, that kind of stuff, right? So then we correlated the perceived waste rate against the selection criteria. Wow. And the greatest irony was that at 79%, the lawyers who asked for the training had the highest rate of waste. They were wait, wait, excuse me, rate of waste. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You, Everybody you reacted the what, that, that is so fascinating. What do you make out of that? Well, you mentioned earlier not knowing what you don't know. Right. There's actually a progression in the realm of competence. Yeah. And there are four of them. So we begin, as you referenced, that unconscious incompetence. We don't know what we don't know. Right, right. Well, the, the characteristic, the dominant characteristic at that stage is unfounded and unjustified overconfidence about our innate ability to do whatever it is based right. upon ignorance of what it takes to do what it is, do, right. do the thing, right? Right, right. And so we don't perceive any frequency. And so at that point, there's no real appetite for, for training or coaching or remediation of any form. So the example I like to use, uh, I don't know if you play golf, I do not, but so I use this example where I might say of golf, well, how hard can it be? The ball's not moving. It sits there, it waits for you to hit it. Nobody's trying to block your shot. No shot clock. You can take as much time as you want. Everybody's got to be nice and quiet while you do it. How hard can it be? <laughs> Obviously, right? Yeah, golfers all laugh, uh, of course, justifiably. But if I got out on the course and tried to do it, I would very quickly progress to stage two, which is conscious incompetence, because right. I would become acutely aware of my deficiencies, right? right. Only then have an appetite. I'm not going to go get golf lessons before I have that realization, right? Right. So I'm, my primary belief is that lawyers are opting in to training and coaching in that because they don't know what they're opting into. Right. And when they get in there and find out that it's work and you got to commit and you got to do this, that, and the other thing, then they, they opt out. The other thing is that the optics of not opting in are not good. Uh -huh. If a firm offers this and you say, no, I don't want it, that's not the smartest career move, right? Oh, no. So th there are, th there's a lot of reasons why lawyers find themselves in these programs and they shouldn't be. So the, the idea is that we will give them an opportunity to find out how serious they are. 
know, with nobody bugging them or nagging them or anything like that. Let's just see what you do on your own, left right. to your own devices. So the firm's been, you know, the firm presumes that there's a percentage of lawyers that want to do this and want to learn and all that. They just don't know what the percentage is and they don't know the identities of the lawyers that make up that percentage. Right. So that's what we're trying to solve now. Interesting. Interesting. So the the ones that are opting in are the ones that are not performing or they're not um, carrying through with whatever. I mean, in your programs, in any of the programs, um, I'm, are they somewhat like an um, e-course module that there's paperwork and things that they have to actually actively act upon? Well, um, again, they don't have to do anything, but if they want to demonstrate their seriousness of purpose. So, for example, in Deserve, um, the, the app measures their activity. You know, how often do they consume content, how consistently, how sustainably, you know, whatever, sure. whatever traits the firm values and says, we, we think it's important that they show consistency. Okay, fine, you can measure that, right? And, and so then they make a preliminary conclusion and they, they don't really, there's no, the good thing for the, uh, you know, from being in the job, that the last thing you want is something else on your plate that you have to manage, right? And right. so um, the, the beauty is that because this is a dashboard that's color coded, you don't have to do anything until you have a decision to make. So let's say a, a lawyer approaches you and says, hey, I, I want to get some coaching and all that. I want you to invest in that. And you look at the Deserve app and you see a lot of red. <laughs> you say, well, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, we got this and you didn't do anything with this. Why would we believe you're going to do something with this really expensive thing? You know, and, and so you don't have to do anything to have a decision to make. If you're going to make a programmatic decision, you know, you say, okay, let's see who seems to, you know, give me the top 50 or 30 or, you know, give based on the size of your firm. So the idea is that uh, it's not adding to, to the uh, time and attention overhead. It's just giving you the answer when you need it. And if you don't need the answer today, then don't look at it. Don't pay any attention. Hmm. Okay, now, we, we do some things to help uh, prompt new habits. So I, I, uh, I've got a program I created that sends out an email to the lawyers at various intervals, you know, 12 days, 17 days, whatever. Okay. It varies. And it says, here's a new article that just showed up and deserve. It'll do this for you. It'll help you with networking or pricing or whatever. The idea is to get them to be aware, oh, yeah, I've got this tool here. I've been there. Well, let me go take a look at this thing. Or I don't care about that, but let me go see this other thing I do care about, right? And so uh, it just, it, we try to help. But it, again, it's not better go do this, better go do this. It's, hey, I thought you might find this article interesting or not. Right, right, right. So um, for the firms, I mean, in your preliminary beta and the um, test marketing and your um, information gathering, um, how are firms or leadership feeling about allowing their attorneys, associates, partners, whomever, to have, uh, I guess, I wouldn't want to say lack of accountability because I know there's metrics, but, you know, do they, what are their expectations? Well, I, I guess that's a, I guess that's a self-selection in that if they are, if they are committed to forcing compliance then this probably isn't the tool for them. Right. Because that's not what it does. Right. You know, you, you're still, I think most firms, though, at this point, after 25 years of failure, yeah. you know, what, the one thing that that data shows me is that you cannot predict who will do this and who won't. Right. You cannot. Okay. Right. 
So if you persist in that, well, fine. Then it really doesn't matter what tools you use because you're subject to this same cultural barrier, right? Right. Um, but I, so I think that the firms that experiment with this or, or embrace it are the ones that have said, we, we give up. You know, we, we've tried compliance and we've tried everything we can. And let, let's, see, let's see what this does for us. Mm -hmm. well, I, th I think it's just... It's like the kids that wear the, the fourth child that the parents are worn out and they don't, they don't pay attention to anyone. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, I, we see it in firms all the time. And one of the things that interesting that we've been seeing much more frequently, um, and that is um, so many firms, and, and we're in the Philadelphia region, and most of the ones that we've worked with have been here recently, and that is what we call the founder's trap. Yeah is that the firms are really running scared because their founders from 40, 50 years ago are now in their 70s and 80s and, you know, with all due respect, they're dying off and they, they don't have um, uh, the next generation of leaders who are either willing and or capable um, to step into those new roles of management because, I mean, for various reasons, number one, they've not, they don't have a clue because there's, I mean, this doesn't come by osmosis. The market, you know, the paradigm has changed in the marketplace after the Great Recession. So what worked back then certainly does not work now. And so they, they're just running around like chicken little. They don't know really what to do. And when we've approached them <clears throat> or when they've actually approached us about training and coaching and we outline our program, you know, there still doesn't seem to be at the level of political will that you thought, think that there would be to actually save the firm. Yeah, you're, uh, you're right. This, um, the, the iPad example that I shared with you, the, uh, the, the executive committee member involved at the time when I was chatting with him afterwards, he said, well, he says, I guess projected far enough into the future, this could represent the dissolution of the firm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's crazy to me I mean it's just it it just it defies logic to me and to many of my colleagues that are experiencing similar situations you know that it's not small firms or just law, large firms but I mean when you take that top deck of you know sunsetting lawyers out of the picture and they're still hoarding most of their originations and they're either not willing, capable, or educated to the point that now this needs to transition, you know, I mean, it's like a house of cards. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's going to be interesting in these, this next few years because I was just, I did some programs at the ALA conference in Grapevine, Texas, um, earlier in, the, in April, and when I was walking through the exhibition hall, meeting and catching up with colleagues and meeting new colleagues, I was really stunned by the number of tech marketing tech booths and exhibitors. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, you and I have been to LMA, ALA over many decades, but I would say three quarters of likely a hundred exhibitors were some type of software marketing technology solution. Yeah, and a further granularity, because I, I measured this uh, a, a few conferences ago, 90% uh, of them are lead gen. There's almost nothing for lead conversion. Oh, and that's, 
That's nuts. Well, I think that that's, you know, for folks like myself who've been inside law firms and every, I was in three law firms, every single one of them that I was in, large, medium, small, all three of them rejected summarily just even the um, purchase of a CRM. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, they just, they don't, they just don't, they just don't get it. And um, so it's going to be interesting. So what do you think with all this disruption and the paradigm shift that has taken place and that now the legal services world sees itself in, with the, um, you know, the clients are in the buyer's seat um, and uh, um, it's a buyer's market. Where do you see this? What do you, what do you see for the next few years, five, 10 years in, in the legal services realm? Well, I won't be so vain as to claim I can predict the uh, time frame, but one of the one of the patterns that I've been arguing for a long time, I believe that the um, the sales role is going to evolve much like it has been for decades in the enterprise software business, whereby uh, a sales professional teams up with a, a content expert, you know, in this case a lawyer, a domain expert, okay. and the sales professional manages the the actual sales process and and the decision process and all that and the lawyer is the um the technical credibility behind the sale and there's some interesting data that just got published in the last week or so uh i I, i'm sure you've seen this where they're talking about how i I think it was i think it was a a report from the most recent lma conference the gc panel where they surprised everybody by talking about uh, that they wanted to talk to the marketers, not right. the lawyers. Yes. Right? Because yes, and, and this, is, this is years ago. I'll give you a shout out to um, uh, our friend Adam Severson. When he was at Dor- Dorsey and Whitney, yes. uh, they were, and he was a sales guy there, one of the early ones, right? Uh, he, uh, his, his boss at the time told me that there were clients that would only talk to him. Wow. And then 15 years ago. Goodness. You know, because they saw that the, the meeting was much more productive because he's focused on their needs and the business realities and all the stuff that makes you relevant, you know, and, and from which the demand derives. So I think that where it's going to go is that they're going to realize, hopefully through, you know, in part, at least my intercession here, uh, but they're going to, by whatever means, they're going to discover that that 80% is just not going to do this. Yeah. And so they're going to look at the 20% or maybe the 10%, you know, it's actually 10. Our model says that 80%, uh, 50% won't even log in the first time. 80% won't satisfy the performance criteria at stage one. Uh, the 20% that advances to stage 2A, because there's two parts to that, uh, two successive three-month uh, programs, uh, ha- half of the 2A won't make it to 2B. Wow. Ten percent of the those ten percent of the firm's pop, lawyer population will earn uh, consistent coaching and you know serious investment and that sort of thing. Huh. So, so I think that when the firms begin to realize that their their actual sales force is very small, I I think that the um, their appetite for teaming up with sales professionals is is going to start to ramp up. Huh. What do you think it's going to take to get them to that point? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) hopefully, hopefully hundreds and hundreds and thousands of deserve users. (laughs) I I think that kidding aside, I think it's, um, I think it's inevitable 
because the model that they're using right now is just flat out not sustainable. Right. The, the, the response they're trying right now, and have been trying for a few years, <clears throat> excuse me, is to, is to buy laterals, right? right? But the cost of those laterals is going up far more rapidly than their productivity is. Right. And, and, you know, they're getting stuck with guarantees and stuff like that of paying somebody $2 million a year and then they're not, they don't bring the business they promised and all that, right? Right, right. So that, that, model's, that model's already failing. Yes. Um, uh, for years, the data was that uh, a lateral brings only 50% of the business they project, right? Sure. Yep. And uh, the newest data I saw was 27%, mm. right? But the, the 27%, I don't see as the problem. The 27% is in part beyond their control. The more important question is, can they replace the 73? Right, right. And right. most of the time, the answer is going to be no. Right. And, and so I think all of the, with firms embracing greater use of analytic data and, and you know, the whole big data movement and that sort of thing, firms are getting better informed about this stuff too. Uh-huh. It's no longer anecdotal data accumulated by somebody like me or, or whatever, or even somebody on the scale of BTI, the firms are starting to look at their own data. Right. And, and they're going to see that this marketing and well, the marketing stuff, that's a longer conversation, but the sales stuff, they're going to see that it can't work. And, and they're going to start to look, they're going to start to investigate the places where they have used professional salespeople. And they'll start to evaluate that. And then you get the cultural readiness and that kind of thing. So I wouldn't attempt to project the timeline. But I, given what I've observed of the history of business, I have to believe it's inevitable. Yeah. Well, it just, I mean, given all the, the dynamics that I described earlier, as far as the legal demand shrinking in, in many sectors, the oversaturation of the, the supply of lawyers, you know, the, cl- the clients being much more discerning of what they will and will not and who and who not will they will not pay for. I mean, those three factors alone. And then you've got the, the founder's trap of so many firms that were began in the 50s, 60s, even 70s, um, that these folks are, you know, sunsetting in their careers. I mean, I mean, some of the firms we've worked with, I mean, you would think that they think that they're uh, immortal. Um, for, for their lack of, you know, even willingness to listen and, and understand, you know, what's going on in their own marketplace. Yeah. But, um, Can't but, argue that one. So let me ask you a couple of questions. I want to be respectful of your time. But um, so what if, you know, this is switching gears a little bit, but um, if you could give yourself, your younger self, one piece of professional advice, what would it be? Wow. Um, focus on relevance. Tell me more about that. Well, if you think about it, everybody's busy, has always been busy, even, you know. I mean, when I graduated from college, I'm going to date myself with this, uh, but it was in the middle of a pretty intense recession in the early 70s. And um, I remember uh, I was. I was an advertising major and I, I'm trying to get a job in a dead market. Right. And right. this one guy finally said, look, he said, uh, if you keep going to advertising agencies looking for an entry level job, he said, your last stop's going to be the sixth street bridge. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. He got, he got my attention. <laughs> you know, but anyway, uh, so at any rate, the, uh, what I mean is that 
whether it's social media in your personal life or your business life or whatever, if you're not relevant to someone's world, they have no legitimate reason to pay any attention to you. Right. None. And so if, if you focus on relevance, you will automatically not make it about you. Yes. Because none of us are inherently relevant to anybody. Mm, right. You know, we, we may have ideas or interests or things that are relevant with you know, some subset of people, but we as, as individuals are not relevant to anyone. And so I would, if, it, it took me a while to, to, to be able to, um, to voice it this way, you know, to, to encapsulate the concept of relevance. But I would, I would do that. Um, I remember years ago, uh, my friend Richard Levick, uh, who I think you know, sure. what, he used to teach a, a course at American University. It's one of these combination curricula, you know, with the best and the brightest, that kind of thing. Sure. And so he would have me come in there each year and, and I would teach his class. And, um, and, and it was all about your, the first sale you have to make is getting your first job, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so I stand up in front of this class and they're expecting me to just start talking, right? You know, start giving us wisdom. And I just stared at them for probably 30 seconds. And you know how long that is when it's, <laughs> right? And uh, so the first thing I said to them was, as early in your career as possible, get fired. And their eyes got like saucers, right? <laughs> and Richard's over there hiding his face. Oh my God, what is he telling them, right? <laughs> so, um, but I said, no, I'm, I'm completely serious because that, that's the club that they hold over you throughout your career. Yeah. When it happens, you'll realize that it is inconvenient, but not life-threatening. Correct. And so I, I was using that as a metaphor for, to, for fearlessness. Just do it. Yeah. It's easier to get forgiveness than permission. Of course. And you know, I, I, I talk about relevance because it, it allows you to say, it isn't about me. Every, I'm not for everybody. Everybody shouldn't hire me. You know, it's not just they didn't and I got screwed. No, maybe, maybe it's not a good idea to hire you. Not that nobody should, but not right. there. Not right. now. Right. Or for that. You know, so if I had to pick one thing, which is hard, you know, we, we, we get older, we have... Uh, experts disease you know we know too damn much (laughs) and can make sense of too little of it perhaps (laughs) (laughs) that's an interesting way of putting it yeah (laughs) oh it's like you know i've sometimes i say to people that i mentor i've I've forgotten most of what i've you know i've i've forgotten more than than you'll ever learn or something along those lines i mean all that has come across the transom and 30 some years of being in business. Um, and it, you know what? I really say that uh, I remember when I was in my first law firm job in the 91 is 91 to 99 was my first firm in Philadelphia. And, you know, I remember that that firm was the first firm in Philadelphia to launch a website. And I remember thinking distinctly when that was introduced to me, as you said earlier, it's like, oh, Jesus, just one more thing I have to do. Yeah, yeah. Little did I know the transformational impact that that was about to make on everyone's life in, in this world. But, you know, one of the things that I think that younger folks may not have the capacity to appreciate is that this pace at which change happened, you know, is back even in the 80s early 90s is nothing compared to how we live today oh yeah with the pace of change oh yeah absolutely 
So, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> so I want to conclude with um, um, the Secret Sauce, KLA Marketing Secret Sauce podcast um, today and thanking Mike O'Haro from um, longtime pal in the legal marketing world and um, what you, you describe yourself as a serial entrepreneur. Is that correct? That's correct. Correct. Um, very very innovator. Uh, an innovator, of course. He's one of the smartest, I have to say, I've always, you know, when we had opportunities to work together and my firm wouldn't put whatever firm I was with, wouldn't pull the trigger. They didn't understand the value, which is always a huge lift for us who are in the position of, um, you know, trying to support and lift our clients, whether they're lawyers or whomever else. Um, it's that unconscious incompetence that we, that is just the biggest rock to push up the hill. Yep. Um, but we all keep fighting the fight um, <clears throat> and leading the way forward, hopefully. Um, so I want to give our, our listeners an opportunity to connect with you, Mike. So if you would, please, um, you know, what's the best way for us to connect with you in any capacity? Well, I'm flattered that someone would want to, but my email address is Mike O'Horo, no punctuation, at RainmakerVT.com. VT stands for virtual training. Um, I'm on Twitter at, at SalesCoach. I'm on LinkedIn. And um, pretty easy to find. Two websites, RainmakerVT.com and Deserve.com, D-E-Z-U-R-V-E. I appreciate you asking about that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's just... We can, we can lead the horses to water, we can explain, we can show how wonderful and yummy that water is, but ultimately the, the third element is we cannot push their heads into the water to make them drink. Well, everybody gets there at their own pace. I, a guy hired me, um, I don't know, I guess two months ago, um, out of his pocket, a lawyer at a big firm, hmm. and um, he said, I've been reading your results mail every week for four years. He says, and I decided that it was finally time for me to do something with what I'm learning rather than just learn it. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yeah. Yeah. But everybody gets here their own way at their own pace. Yeah. It, it, you're right. You're absolutely right. Everybody comes to it in a different way. I always like to say, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Yeah. Well, he's an example of that 65%. In his case, it was more like 85% of the way he got there on his own, you know, uh, digitally. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a never-ending process. But So thank you so much um, for your time and your expertise. It's always a pleasure. I'm, a, I'm so delighted that we could uh, connect over the, the waters, if you are. What water is it that you live nearest? Well, I'm, I'm uh, on Ambergris Key, which is uh, an island off the coast of Belize, which is uh, nestled between Mexico and Guatemala. So we are on the Caribbean Sea. You are on the Caribbean Sea. Okay. Yeah, the Western, the Western Caribbean. Gotcha. Does it ever not have good weather? <laughs> That's what we mean by not good. Every day it's 84 to 88 oh, with a light Caribbean breeze. And um, we're now, in another month, we'll be into the rainy season. So we'll get some rain for, you know, more like Miami where you get it for an hour and then it's gone like that. That sounds pretty wonderful. We go to Aruba quite a bit. Um, oh, yeah. And so it sounds a lot like that. I mean, it... Probably. Yeah, I've been to Aruba. It's it's similar climate, I would suspect. I mean, it's, um you know, sometimes those winds, we were just there in December, 
and it was like 30 mile an hour winds, which is quite fierce, but um, it only lasts a little, little bit of time because of those trade winds. Um, it comes in and goes out, but the rest yeah. of the time is, is usually pretty yummy. So I want to conclude and thank our listeners for joining us again for our Secret Sauce Marketing Tastings website, uh, podcast today with our <laughs> wonderful friend, wonderful friend, Michael Horro. Um, and this concludes this issue. And we certainly, you know, you can reach out to us at klamarketing.com. Uh, we love to hear your comments and uh, questions and uh, feedback as we're always looking to address our listeners' greatest business development challenges. Um, and you've just heard from the one and only Michael Haro, super, super duper sales coach. I can't say enough good things about him. Michael, Thanks. all my best to you. Enjoy the wonderful weather, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks very much. I appreciate the kind words. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.